Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Welcome, everybody, back to another episode of Dirty Steel Toe Boots, a podcast by the law firm of Ogletree Deacons for employers and those in their safety, legal, and HR departments who need to better understand OSHA as an agency and the law that governs it. I'm your host, Philip Russell. I'm a shareholder in the Tampa office of the firm. I have a national practice in which I've handled around 200 OSHA fatality cases and hundreds of other types, including the type we're going to talk about today, or the retaliation kind. We have one of the largest workplace safety and health practice groups in the country of among law firms. We cover all 50 states with extensive experience with federal OSHA and state OSHA plans. Our approach is simple, but perhaps not easy. We help clients avoid or minimize OSHA citations and improve safety. Just a reminder, folks, this podcast is about education, not about legal advice for specific circumstances. As an employer, it is important for you to know what you can and can't do, but also to know what OSHA can and can't do under the law. You can't hope to hold the agency accountable to the law if you don't know something about the law. And that's what this is all about. So today, my guest is Tom Shibnall from our St. Louis office, a member of our Workplace Safety and Health Practice Group. Tom, say hi. Hey, Philip. Thanks for having me today. I'm looking forward to being a part of this. Yeah, excited to have you aboard and uh, joining the podcast today. So in getting ready for this call, I asked you something interesting about you, and you shared with me that you used to be a high school English teacher. Not imagine a greater torture, but tell me about that. <laughs> uh, you know, I, torture might be a strong word because I'll tell you what, there were days where it was absolutely a blast. But yeah, that was my that was my career before I became a lawyer. I was a, a high school English teacher, uh, teaching everything from grammar to Shakespeare uh, for kids from grades nine through twelve, both here in St. Louis, and then for about four years out in uh, San Fernando Valley in California. All right. Well, full disclosure here and in stark contrast to your experience, Tom, I went to a technical school, the North Avenue Trade School, also known as Georgia Tech. And we're not known for English or composition or writing well at all. So I I have not had an English class since high school. You and I are probably very different writers. Yeah, that's right. Let's just say I've been accused of having flowerly language rather than uh, legal language sometimes, which I'll take as a compliment these days. Well, thanks for joining me today, and I'm excited about it to talk about what we can do to to continue to be helpful to our clients and to employers in the OSHA world. Today, folks, we're going to talk about something that we haven't talked about before, and that is the other side of the house at OSHA. We have talked on this podcast all about the side of OSHA that does the safety and health inspections. We've talked about compliance, safety and health officers, the assistant area directors, area directors, We've talked about what OSHA can and can't do during an inspection. And when OSHA issues a citation, there could be a contested citation that gets reviewed by the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission. And we're going to talk about none of that today. We're talking about the other side, which is the investigation side of the agency that has been tasked by Congress to investigate whistleblower complaints in a myriad laws, a long list of laws 
But we're only going to focus today on Section 11C of the OSH Act, and that is the section of the law. Remember that, folks, the OSH Act is the law that back in 1970 created OSHA, created the agency. And at the same time it created the agency to investigate safety and health, it it gave the agency a mission, and that is contained in Section 11C of the Act. And that is where you will find the whistleblower provision. And simply what it says is, Thou shalt as an employer, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, but an employer cannot terminate or discharge uh, or in any manner discriminate against an employee because the employee filed a complaint or caused a complaint to be filed or otherwise engaged in protected activity under the act. That's the whistleblower provision, Tom, and you've dealt with that law before. (laughs) Many, many times, Philip, many, many times. Yeah, it's... uh... Something that you forget about as when we talk about the OSHA Act, most people are thinking about the the other side of the house, as you mentioned. But yes, this is also another uh, provision of that act. And, you know, we deal with it frequently. I mean, I probably see more 11C claims these days than I do necessarily, um, you know, citations sometimes. Well, and we're talking about this today. We're talking about 11C because something has changed. There has been a uh, development at OSHA, and this has been already, by the way, folks, as you know from this podcast and, and on our other, uh, our other publications out there, LinkedIn and our, our firm's blogs, is OSHA has been active this year on the regulatory front. And one of the things that they have done is they have issued um, from a, a new guidance from on the Whistleblower Complaint Intake Pilot Program is what it's called. But Tom, tell us about that. What happened here? Yeah, so you know, earlier this year, uh, we had the directorate of the Whistleblower Protection Programs come out, and they had an intake program in Region 2, which is New York, New Jersey, Puerto Rico, U.S. Virgin Islands, which was a, an attempt to streamline kind of the intake process. Well, that had gone on for, since 2020, and now that they've evaluated, they say, we're going to apply this nationally, nationwide. So really what OSHA is trying to do here is trying to make things easier by sort of being more selective in the intake process by screening uh, whistleblower complaints a little bit more strenuously and rigorously than they used to. Uh, And in order to do so, the idea here is to sort of make things work a little bit more efficiently. And, you know, as we all as we all like in sort of dealing with governmental entities, efficiency is something that works well for both sides. And that's, I think, the goal here. You said a word that just makes me laugh, but I just think it's funny that OSHA has offices that they call directorates. It sounds all very 80s social Soviets to me, but hey, yes, the directorate of whistleblower protection programs is who we're talking about here. And it went into effect on, when did it go into effect? On the yeah. February 17th, February right? 17th, yep. We'll talk more about what the directorate has done with their directive in a few <laughs> moments. But I think we need to also go back over and just take a quick look at 11C. What does it cover? And there, as I said before, it's a whistleblower part of the act. And all whistleblower statutes, whether they're federal or state, have three elements. Number one is protected activity. And usually, of course, because we're talking whistleblower here, that means a complaint of some kind, typically, or participation of some kind. So number one, protected activity. Number two, there is some adverse employment action that occurred. The employee got fired, demoted, disciplined, something bad happened to the employee. And number three is the causation element, which is a connection that one caused the other. And for 11C, one thing to to look at, folks, is not only the statute, but if you look at 29 
CFR 1977. That's actually OSHA's regulations on how they are supposed to handle 11C complaints. And they also have a guidebook, too, internally that's supposed to help them with these cases. The protected activity you can think of here, folks, is filing a complaint you know, related to the act. So you know, any sort of formal complaint to OSHA about a violation of a standard or general duty clause, helping someone else do that, testifying in any kind of proceeding. And then what I think that's very wide open is, is a general exercise uh, on his or her own behalf or on behalf of others, any right afforded by the act or protected by the act. So that's pretty broad, Tom, in terms of the protected activity, isn't it? It is very broad. And as you've probably seen, Phil, some of these 11C complaints take that broadness and use it to their advantage the best they can, (laughs) Uh, which is part of the intake program and what we're talking about today, kind of how how to best curtail that uh, and maybe rein in a little bit of that breath. Well, all right. Let's talk about sort of the process here. We all know what happens with OSHA is that if you make a complaint on safety and health, the agency has to to you know, do the intake on that again, other side of the house. But on the whistleblower side, I think I think it's interesting, and I think somewhat frustrating sometimes for employees and maybe even their counsel. But they only have thirty days in which to file a complaint, or it's time barred. That's right. Yeah, and, and that's something that employers should definitely consider and be mindful of. Is that essentially there's a statute of limitations. Um, you know, much like you'd see in uh, other sort of agencies that are employment agencies like EEOC or your state agency, there's a time limit to file. Uh, and I will tell you that talking with investigators, when there's an untimely complaint, they're going to stick to that. They're not going to say, oh, yeah, well, you know, your 31 days over will cut you a break. But they'll stick to that with some exceptions, you know, some equitable tolling exceptions. But for the most part, yeah, there's a time limit here and it's a quick turnaround. Look, one of the questions, of course, I'm sure our, our listeners are wondering is, well, why is this a problem now? Why did this, you know, why is OSHA doing something different? And I, I'll share with you my own anecdotal experiences. These claims, even though they, they've got a short shot clock, so to speak, hey, it's, it's basketball season, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> they've got a short shot clock to file a complaint. OSHA does not have a firm obligation by statute or regulation or otherwise for a time frame in which to handle these. And many times I have handled these when it's been two or three years after the complaint was filed, when OSHA ever bothers to pick up the phone and call and say, hey, we need to investigate this. We'd like the documents and the witnesses that's frustrating for clients and us because this is two or three years ago, folks. Your anecdotal experience is much like mine. Uh, I mean, I, especially, and I'll say in recent times here, particularly during COVID, things were getting backed up for many reasons, but also getting backed up on the whistleblower uh, issues as well. And I've had recently dismissals or, or calls from a investigator for a claim that was filed in 2021 or in late 2020. And it's there seems to be a timeline and there should be. I mean, the the manual, the investigator's manual tells us that, you know, there's a 90 day investigative window for a whistleblower investigation to occur. But you and I both know that, you know, that just doesn't happen. And sometimes it's just not readily uh, available for those. Well, I was going to say compliance officers, but the investigators to actually compile. And like you say, you're getting requests two years later to talk to people who just aren't even there. Uh, and, And that's a little bit of an onus on on employers to try to accommodate that or try to respond to that because some people leave and documents are gone or, or something like that. And it's just, it's not timely. And it's, and that's part of the, the hope here is that the delay in investigations will be cut down and we won't run into those problems. 
Well, and I'll tell you, one of the things that's never happened is I've never had OSHA call me up two or three years later and say, oh, by the way, it's two or three years later. And we just go, we're just going to close the file. It doesn't happen that way. <laughs> yeah, no, no, so you're right. Maybe this is some good news for employers that, hey, at least these things are going to be handled perhaps in a more timely manner. So you're able to, to show that, you know, uh, you'll have a better chance of showing with documents and witnesses why you think you did not violate a Section 11C of the Act. And and, and on that note, Tom, before we jump back in over to the, the guidance, I did want to highlight for the audience that just because an employee makes a complaint or engages in protected activity, it's very clear under the law that that does not automatically render him or her immune from termination or discipline for legitimate non-retaliatory reasons. That's something that I think employers really need to understand. And the standard is high. And the standard yes. is is a but-for standard, which means that the complainant has to show, OSHA has to find, in order to, to find an 11C violation, they have to find that the, the adverse action would not have taken place but for the employee engaging in that protected activity. That's the law, and it's also specifically put out in OSHA's regulations, and I'm looking at 29 CFR 1977.6. That's a high bar, isn't it, Tom? That's a really high bar. It's funny, as we talk about this, the, the standard here, to our listeners out there, this is going to sound an awful lot like you're dealing with like a Title VII complaint. And, and in some ways you are. It's very similar to that. But it's a really high bar. And I'm glad that you pointed out there that just because somebody engages in a protected activity uh, doesn't necessarily mean that they're immune from any sort of disciplinary action or any other action that might be considered an adverse action. Employers should certainly keep that in mind and consider that, that just because somebody engaged in a protected activity, whether it's made a complaint or participated in a, an OSHA inspection, doesn't mean that you can't hold them accountable for the for your rules uh, and for following those rules. And, and that's oftentimes where we see these whistleblower actions occur, is that somebody might have made a safety complaint, and then it turns out that they may have violated a, a work rule, a safety rule, whether it's a lockout, tagout, a PPE, whatever it happens to be, uh, and get disciplined for it. And Therefore, we come to an 11C complaint. Uh, so I'm glad that you're bringing that up. You know, it, it can be alarming to get an 11C complaint. Uh, certainly when somebody's accusing you of retaliating against them. But no, that it is a high standard. I mean, that's, that's a but-for standard is the highest, one of the higher standards you can get. And for our employment law friends out there and, and colleagues, they know that very well. And they'll be happy to hear that that standard is so high. Yeah, exactly. So you've got a short shot clock for a complaint in which to be filed by an employee. Then you also have uh, you know, a high standard for them to, to overcome in order to prove or try and establish a violation. Uh, another interesting thing to note though is 11C does not have uh, a private right of action. And what that means folks is that you can't, an employee cannot sue an employer for violation of section 11C, unlike other whistleblower statutes. The remedy here is that if the investigator, the OSHA's investigator, finds that there's cause to believe, then the case gets referred to the, well, it's the department, it's the Secretary of Labor. So they send the case down the hall to the solicitor's office, so to speak, and they make a decision whether to file a complaint on behalf of the Secretary of Labor. There's not a private lawyer lawsuit to be had here. Yeah, Phil, and that's right. That's a big difference than, say, your EOC 
claims where you're going to get a right to sue at the end of it. And you could bring a private right of action in federal court. That doesn't happen here. But, I, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because I have some anecdotal experience here where we, we've had whistleblower complainants who are represented and they may use the whistleblower process as a sense of free discovery see what they can get before, you know, pursuing a either state law or common law claim or, or even filing maybe even a claim uh, or charge with the EEOC. There's no carrot on the end of the stick, uh, so to speak, for the complainant to say, I'm going to file with OSHA and then they're going to give me a, a right to sue. Uh, that's a big difference and, and certainly one that should be understood and considered because, you know, it's it's just wildly different than some other state ag- or some other state and federal agencies. Yeah, and to your point, I think that I've seen that myself where you have a state whistleblower statute. You know, here in Florida, we have one, the Florida Private Whistleblower Act. And that law, you know, similar setup and you having protected activity, adverse action and causation connecting the two. And, you know, the plaintiff's lawyers will look at that and uh, try to set up a case if there's an adverse finding by OSHA in an 11C case. And so it's it's even though there's not a private right of action directly under the OSHA Act, there still is some potential legal exposure for employers if this investigation doesn't go well. This intake pilot program, which has now gone national, Tom is in our St. Louis office, but he, along with our, our colleague Sean Oliveira, did a good article on this on our blog. So if you go to Ogletree and look up uh, OSHA whistleblower, you'll find the uh, the blog entry fairly easily. Good, good write-up here, by the way, Tom. But let's go back into the program. What what should employers be thinking about, and what, what are the aspects of this pilot program that you want to talk about today? Yeah, th- thanks, Philip, and you know, thanks for the plug. I appreciate that. You know, one of the things that caught our attention when we when this came out is the idea that OSHA is trying to essentially streamline things. Uh, it's trying to make things easier on their investigators. Odd sense, you don't hear this too often, but I also think easier on employers as well. We can get rid of some of these sort of facially defective or, you know, maybe complaints that aren't really whistleblower in nature. That's going to allow OSHA to sort of clear a backlog and clear some other cases and allow them to focus on the cases that they have. You know, much like you had said earlier, it takes a long time for some of these investigations to go here and the sort of the results that have been have been provided by region two's program is that by clearing some of these sort of superficial issues it allows investigators to actually devote the time and actually process these these claims much more quickly Uh, and that's kind of the goal and my colleague here in st louis uh sean Oliveira, you mentioned he wrote from the eoc perspective uh that they did this years ago it took a little while but still some kinks in the system but it really helped sort of expedite the process and make things more efficient but as far as you know, the intake uh, classifications that OSHA is talking about, really they they broken them down into three, and I'll mention those here quickly. But they're gonna they've got three categories for for complaints: complaints that are facially not covered by any OSHA administrative whistleblower statute. So this is you know, for instance, somebody files a complaint alleging that they were discriminated on on the basis of their race, but they file it with OSHA. It's just going to be quickly thrown out. Nobody's going to be contacted. It'll just be processed administratively. The second one is complaints that on their face are untimely. We, we best mention that uh, you got the 30 days to file. If it's untimely, it's an easy way for OSHA to sort of administratively close it, push it to the side and, and be done with it. And the third one are complaints that allege safety or compliance concerns, uh, but not retaliation. Uh, and you mentioned this earlier. There is another avenue for that. Individuals can file a complaint with OSHA. They can call it in. They can 
email it in. They can do it anonymously uh, to say that there's a, a hazard in the workplace. And, and you and I are well familiar with that. Those are those notice of alleged hazards that OSHA sends out. That is a different process. And what t- happens from time to time, probably more often than I think, uh, is that people who are making those complaints do so through the whistleblower avenue. And that also creates congestion in the system. So OSHA's done here is sort of classify these intakes. And they said, these three categories we can look at and say, all right, we can just flesh those out and we've done with them, allow us to get back to what we need to do here. And that's investigate actual retaliation claims. One impact possibly could be here that there might be fewer 11C claims that actually get to, uh, that employers get notified about, but the ones that get to them will have been vetted better than in the past. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think that's accurate. And to be frank, I think that's the intention uh, is to is to have more thorough vetting of the process here. So we're not dealing with complaints that clearly are you know untimely or clearly don't have to do with safety uh, or protected activity under the OSH Act. Those are just you know time consuming and they require responses. And I think the goal here is to eliminate that unnecessary burden. And when an employer now gets an 11C, I've got several pending right now, and, and they, the questions always are, well, how long will this take? And <laughs> unlike under the, yeah, right, unlike the safety and health inspection where I can say, look, OSHA has a six-month statute of limitations within which to conduct this investigation and either issue a citation or not, mm-hmm. and that six months is from the date of the alleged violation. There's no such equivalent under Section 11C complaints, but maybe now – is maybe the good news, if there is any good news here from this, that maybe now the good news is for employers, we can say that we're going to, these should be disposed of in less time than before, if not a specific time frame. Yeah. And I think that's, that's right. Uh, at least that's how I've, I've read it and sort of how the intention has worked out is that, you know, we're going to see, we may see fewer 11C claims, but the ones we do see, they're going to be vetted, first of all. And second of all, I think we can prepare ahead of time, knowing we have one for a little bit more thorough investigation and a much more timely investigation. And so instead of having a 24 month time period in which a investigation is occurring, it might be shrunk down to six or eight months. Uh, that, you know, that would be great. I mean, it would be a, a lot easier to, to sort of flood those things out and, and respond to those and set up your interviews and make sure all your folks and your personnel are still present. Uh, so I think that's the hope. And, and that's kind of what I anticipate as well is that we get a little bit quicker disposition on these. We're certainly beginning to already see more robust investigation positioning, I guess is the right words, right way to put it, from OSHA. I've seen that as well, Philip, and I don't I don't disagree with you. I think we're gonna that's kind of the direction we're headed. And you know, to forecast a little bit, and you and I have talked about this, I know before, but I also think we're going to see an uptick in, you know, state whistleblower claims, you know, whether they become common law or under state statutes. Um, for that reason, I think we'll find more people gravitating towards those state law claims uh, following a dismissal or the disposition of a uh, 11C complaint. Well, Tom, let's wrap it up here, my friend. Uh, another minute or so to go. Uh, give us three uh, three pointers that employers may want to consider in light of this development from the agency. Yeah, very good. I think we've touched on um, all three that I was going to talk about. But, you know, one is that you can expect to have a much more thoroughly vetted process here, uh, which leads into the fact that I think you're going to find a, a little bit more robust investigation that's done and a more timely investigation, which you know, if that's the case, then we can prepare that on the front end and, and employers should certainly consider that as they get these in, uh, complaints going on and said, prepare for this a little bit more aggressively. 
you know, the other thing is that I just think we're going to see a little bit more litigation uh, unfold in state in state courts, uh, whether that's under common law claims or state whistleblower claims. I know, like you said, in, in Florida, you have the your statutory whistleblower claim. We have one here in Missouri, too. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if we see more of these complaints come out based on the quick turnaround uh, that we're going to see from OSHA on these 11 C's. Well, Tom, thank you very much for joining. I appreciate it. It's a great episode today, an area that we don't talk a lot about, but these whistleblower claims maybe something we'll revisit later in the year. We'll see how this goes. So maybe you'll come back and join me again and, <laughs> and share what we've learned six months down the road, perhaps. That's right. Well, I'm happy to do it. This has been a real pleasure. Always, ha I'm always glad to talk to you. I'm glad to do it in this format as well. This is wonderful. Folks, before we close out, just a reminder, we have our Workplace Safety Symposium uh, every year that we do for employers uh, featuring members of our uh, Workplace Safety and Health Practice Group from all around the country. We talk about Fed OSHA issues, state OSHA issues, issues like these today and, and others. It's a great event for in-house counsel, corporate safety directors and others. I uh, hope you join us. We're going to be in Austin this year. Last year, we were in my town of Tampa. This year, we'll be in Austin, December 6, 7, and 8. And if you go to Ogletree.com and search for the webinar or search for seminars, you'll find it, the Workplace Safety Symposium. I hope to see you all in Austin. Tom, once again, thank you very much, my friend. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.